Good morning. My name is Dave Furman. I serve as the senior pastor of our church. It's a delight to be with each of you this morning. But before we get into Genesis, I have a few important things to mention to you to reiterate that Marwan said earlier today. Actually, one new thing. Uh, Just a reminder, we have our compelling community conference with Mark Dever and Jonathan Lehman on Friday, January 8th from 4 to 9 p.m. You'll find more information in your bulletin. You can register online or in the foyer after the service today. You don't want to miss that. Also, just to reiterate, our Christmas picnic is today at 2 p.m. at Zabiel Park, gate number 2. It's a great time to bring food, to eat, to share with others, to be in fellowship together and enjoy the beautiful weather and the grace that God has given us. So today, 2 p.m., Zabiel Park. And then lastly, don't forget Christmas Eve is on Thursday. We found out two days ago, as Marwan said, that we are no longer able uh, to have this ballroom due to circumstances outside of our control. Normally we have this whole thing. We have the the back area behind me and we we fill it up with about 1,600 seats. Um, Well, we're not able to use it, but in God's kindness, they did make room for us in the other ballroom. And so, because we couldn't all fit there at once for Christmas Eve, we'll have a service at 5 p.m. and one at 7 p.m. if you missed that announcement earlier. Since it's a public holiday, we hope that many of you would be able to come at 5 p.m. We're encouraging those with children and those who are participating in the children's choir to come to the service at 5 p.m. And then we'll gather the kids afterwards and we'll have uh, the children's choir singing upstairs on the mezzanine level. So when you walk into the main lobby, you see those big stairs. You'll go up those stairs. Our coffee and tea snacks will be up there. We'll hear the children sing and that'll be in between uh, the two services. So we made a change from when we printed the bulletin. So make note of that. Um, and if you plan on coming to the second service, come early, go upstairs, drink some coffee and tea. Let's enjoy fellowship together uh, on Christmas Eve. Again, this is a great time to bring your friends, uh, neighbors. And so we have updated uh, invite cards with the updated service times. Get these out to neighbors, coworkers, friends. Everyone is invited. And we pray that people who don't know about Jesus or have never heard the gospel would hear of it in this outreach service or services on the 24th. Well, without further ado, now on to Genesis. If you've been keeping track, this is it. This is the last sermon in the first book of the Bible. We've been studying this through parts of three years, and this is the final one today. If this is your first Friday with us, we're glad you're here. You've come at the end, but we will be starting something new, so no worries. But let me catch you up to where we've been Uh, Over these last three years. Let me just give us all the storyline of this most glorious first book of the Bible. We saw in Genesis chapter 1 that in the beginning there was only God. God is infinite. He existed as the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternity past. And he will exist in eternity future. There was never and will never be a time when he ceases to exist. In Genesis 2, we see the pinnacle of God's creation, man and woman. They're created in God's image. Adam and Eve, the first humans and all humans thereafter, were created by God in his image to be in fellowship with God. God didn't create us because he was lonely. He didn't create us because he needed a chess partner to play with or someone to talk to. But he created us in order to share his glory so that we might enjoy him forever. The first two humans were given this beautiful garden and everything in it was at their disposal. 
except the fruit of one tree. A smaller limitation one could hardly imagine. Adam and Eve, they enjoyed fellowship until one day they rebelled against their creator. Rather than submit to their loving God, they chose to go their own way and live apart from God. They ate from the tree they were commanded not to. And this fatal choice didn't just leave them with a bad stomach ache from eating rotten fruit. It spoiled their lives and all of humanity. They were cast outside the garden and now there's this barrier between man and God. And since then, each baby is born into that same sin. Well, this bad news is pretty bad. Specifically when sin against an infinite God means death and judgment is the only righteous and just punishment. At this point in Genesis, things were looking pretty gloomy. But there's this little glimpse you may remember from a couple years ago in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. This little glimmer of a promise that Jesus Christ would come born of a woman to crush Satan. That a savior would come to win victory, to forgive our sins and reconcile us to God. But that was only a little glimpse, and the story continues. And for the next couple thousand years, wickedness reigns. There's a good guy named Abel, and then Enoch is a good guy who God just whisks to heaven. He just takes him away during his life. He's so good. But otherwise, there's just sheer evil. So much so that God decides to flood the earth and to start over. He spares a man named Noah and his family, and they build an ark to escape a flood. But still, after the flood, sin reigns. It just, it just continues. Noah veers off track and gets drunk. At the Tower of Babel, all of the society, they gather together to try to make a name for themselves. A mistake all humans would make in thinking they can save themselves. But then again, another glimpse of the promise. Remember last year, Genesis chapter 12. God shows up and goes to an old man named Abraham and says, go leave your home and go to a land that I will show you. I'm going to bring a seed, a savior, one who will save his people from their sins. And it'll come through your family line. God makes a covenant in chapter 15 and says, I promise to give you land, seed, and blessing. I'm going to give it all through you. And if I don't, Let me be like these dead animals that are cut up and in pieces. Basically, God was saying, I'm going to do it. This is a promise. Abraham still can't understand. How can I have a son? I'm old. My wife's too old to bear children. Eh, That's okay, God says. You'll have a son anyway, because nothing is too impossible for me. And eventually, Sarah gets pregnant and Their son is born and they name him Isaac. Then Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And the promises are reiterated to Jacob. Now we saw Jacob's life. It was up and down, up and down, but mostly down. Altogether, he has 12 sons from four different women. Jacob's favorite son is Joseph. But Joseph's brothers are jealous. They get bitter against him, that they sell him off into slavery and fake his death. They tell dad, hey, an animal ate our brother. These brothers are a mess. We've looked at it over the last few months. They sell their brother. A couple of them are murderers. One is guilty of incest. One sleeps with a prostitute. All the while, their brother 
Joseph is still alive and is a slave in a foreign land. But Joseph finds favor in Egypt. He works in an official's home. He runs the business and household. He does a great job until one day the official's wife accuses Joseph of attempted rape. And Joseph gets thrown into prison in the dungeon. But again, Joseph finds favor. He interprets the king's dreams and pretty soon he's number two in all of Egypt. He's at the right hand of Pharaoh. He's the governor of all of Egypt. Joseph, this brother, this slave, this prisoner runs the country. Over these months, we've looked at despair, discouragement, triumph, tragedy, highs, lows, dreams, dungeons, promotion, rejection, gain, loss, the ups and downs, the ins and outs. This was one roller coaster, faster than Ferrari world and longer than you could imagine. Well, after interpreting Pharaoh's dreams, Joseph comes up with a plan for Egypt to store up grain, to save it up because a famine will come. And the plan works to perfection. So much so the whole world actually comes to Egypt to survive, to have food to eat, including Joseph's brothers. Two decades later, Joseph can't believe his eyes when he sees his brothers coming. He doesn't tell his his brothers that it's him when he sees them. Instead, he takes them through a series of tests. Eventually, he sees that his brothers have changed. And he finally reveals his true identity at a big feast. It's a glorious scene. His brothers go back and bring father, bring Jacob into Egypt. And it's a marvelous moment of father holding son after all those years. And then last week we saw Pharaoh give Joseph's family some wonderful land in Goshen to live. Jacob blesses Joseph's sons according to God's prerogative and not his own. And now he's about to die. But there are questions that still linger here at the end. Are the promises of God really going to continue through these men? What will come of the relationship between Joseph and his brothers now that dad passes away? Is Joseph waiting until dad dies to to finally exact revenge on those brothers that sold him years ago? How will Genesis end? Well, that's what we're talking about today. And in these two chapters, we'll see two things. We'll see a lot of things, but here's the two-point outline if you're taking notes today. Number one, we'll see God's promises reiterated. God is going to reiterate his promises again. And number two, God's perspective remembered. We'll be reminded of God's perspective. So two points, promises, perspective. First, God's promises reiterated. Look at Genesis chapter 49, verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. We get the sweet picture of Jacob gathering his sons around him at his deathbed. He's going to say his final words. Bless them, pray for them, and prophesy over them. And in doing so, he's not just going to have nice things to say. This is a straightforward prophecy of God speaking through Jacob and making this 
pronouncement. It's of things that will come to pass. Well, the first three sons, they don't receive so much a blessing as they do curses. Verse 3, Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed and then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Reuben is condemned because of his incest. He loses his place as the oldest in the family and preeminence will soon end when the whole tribe disappears at the time of the monarchy just a few hundred years later. Well, then Jacob groups the next two sons, Simeon and Levi, together starting in verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel, O my glory. Be not joined to their company. From their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce in their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. These two brothers are put together because they committed the exact same crime when they desecrated God's covenant sign of circumcision and then killed all the men of Shechem. They get cursed as well. Well, then he gets to Judah. Wonder what Judah is thinking at this point. These blessings don't sound real good. Maybe he's even stepping back at the moment or thinking about making a run for it. I don't know. This isn't good news. This isn't a feel-good time around the campfire with their dad who's about to pass away. But the first three prophecies stand in contrast to what Jacob is going to say about Judah. Judah has become a leader of the group. We've seen Judah's life change drastically. Jacob prophesies four blessings for Judah. Praise, power, eternality, and prosperity. Let's look at each of those. First, the first blessing for Judah is praise. Verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. It's pretty clear. Judah's name actually means praise. And this phrase is a word play on his very name. Judah's being praised for becoming the leader of the brothers. And this praise will extend throughout his line of ancestors. The second blessing is power. The rest of verse 8 and 9. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Judah will triumph over his enemies. Interestingly, he's told the same promise of, as Joseph's dream. But this time the brothers are bowing down to him. While it's happening to Joseph now, it will happen to Judah through his line in the future. Well, Judah's like a lion that captures its prey and then dares anyone to come and fight the next battle. In the wilderness, Judah would be by far the largest tribe. Caleb was in the line of Judah. He also demonstrated these lion-like qualities when, when he bravely called the entire nation to fulfill its calling in conquering Canaan. The military successes of King David may also be in view here. And then, of course, Jesus would be the ultimate Judah, the true lion of the tribe of Judah. Well, th- the third blessing we see is eternality. 
verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Well, the scepter is a symbol of power and kingship, a power that will never leave Judah. His will be a kingship that will never end. A Davidic king would soon be appointed to rule the nations, and that king would point again to the greater king, King Jesus, who would come. And the fourth blessing of Judah is prosperity. Verses 11 and 12. Binding his fold to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Every line of these verses speaks of an intoxicating abundance of provision. Judah will be so prosperous and his vineyard so abundant that he could tie up his donkey to the best vine and it wouldn't matter if if that donkey had a midnight snack and just ate the whole thing. There was plenty to spare. There was an abundance of vines. And he can wash his clothes in wine. Another picture of abundance. There's so much wine, you could wash your clothes in it and you wouldn't be wasteful. This prophecy also looks like an allusion to Jesus announcing the age to come in the imagery in his first sign at the the wedding at Cana of Galilee when Jesus turns water into wine. Dark eyes there is more like sparkling eyes, and along with white teeth were also images of prosperity. They point to the leader's beauty. Bible scholar Derek Kidner says this prophecy presents a miniature of the biblical scheme of history. That all of this ultimately points to the greater Judah. First in King David, and then an even greater king to come. A king who wouldn't just be a man, but God himself would come, be born of a virgin 2,000 years ago in a little town called Bethlehem. This prophecy is fulfilled most of all in that golden age of the coming of Christ who would come to save his people as, as we celebrate that very thing this Christmas of the God who has come to us. David would be a good king, but Jesus would be the perfect king, and his kingdom would have no end. God's promises are reiterated again, first to Adam, then to Abraham, then to Isaac, then to Jacob, and now in these prophecies to Judah. His kingdom cannot fail. Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 and 6 says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open up the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. God will bring about his promises through the tribe of Judah. Friends, this should bring us immense comfort today as we live in a fallen world. Our lives are not meaningless, and this life is not as good as it gets. Better times await. This prophecy is meant to comfort us as Christians. But we're not done yet. There's still more prophecy to come. Keep 
looking with me. Next, we have Zebulun, who increasingly is listed before his, uh, interestingly, is listed before his older brother Issachar, giving him preeminence. He's the more prosperous of the two. God gives Zebulun priority in the land. Later on, Zebulun contributes the largest amount of soldiers to David's army. Issachar will be big, strong, and lazy. He'll do anything for a nap. What do you do for a living Issachar? Well, I like to nap a lot. That's what this guy is like. Dan is like a snake on the road, small and vulnerable, though aggressive and a fighter at times. Gad will be attacked by a band of raiders. That'll be a bad day for him. But then here's my favorite blessing. And if I didn't know any better, I would say this next verse is the main point of the text today. I mean, if you can't be Joseph or Judah, you've got to aspire to be an Asherite. Verse 20. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Now, this is the guy you want leading your church picnic. Asher is the man. It's amazing how much the Bible talks about food, isn't it? It just keeps coming up in our sermons. Asher's going to have the best land, the best food. You really want this tribe to invite you over for their potlucks. Asher, verse 20, remember that verse. Nephtali is known for beauty and swiftness. And then we get Joseph, the favorite son. Verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. His life is really going to blossom. It's going to be filled with family and influence. It's just like a vine that grows over a wall that can't be contained. But there will be hardship. Verse 23, the archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. It's already happened. It will happen. People are going to hate him. And yet, verse 24, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. What he's saying is, yeah, people are going to attack you, but God is going to be right there with you like he's always been there with you. Verse 25, by the God of your father who will help you, by the almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Jacob's saying, Joseph, you're going to be okay given quite an inheritance to your sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. God will strengthen you by his grace in your life. Here's a faithful man of God. Joseph has served God faithfully his whole life. And there's blessing for him. Even under difficult circumstances, Joseph has remained faithful. There's cursing for the violent and perverted, and there's blessing for those who are obedient and faithful. And then we get the youngest, Benjamin. The animal imagery presents Benjamin as a predatory wolf, which is later displayed in bravery and skill in war. Well, what can we learn from these prophecies? What can we learn from this chapter? Well, at least three things. First, that God is sovereign over all things. 
We've seen this as a theme throughout the Joseph narrative, haven't we? That God is in providential control over everything. His ways are not our ways. The oldest doesn't automatically receive the blessing. God often reverses the world's way of doing things. And he's been inverting the birth order throughout the whole book. The point is, God chooses to bless whomever he wills. Well, a second thing. Our lives do matter to God. Maybe a better way to say that is the way we live matters. God, through Jacob, blesses the tribes, but not independently from their lives. The prophecies are connected to their conduct, and our sin has consequences. It's not when you were born that's most important, but whether you are born again that matters most. Are you faithful to Christ? How you live your Christian life matters. Joseph lives a godly life. God blesses him. Yes, God is sovereign, but your obedience to God matters. Oh, friend, I ask you this morning, how is your life? Are you more like Joseph? Like Judah at the end of his life? Or like the brothers of old? Do you present yourself one way here on Friday mornings like everything's okay and like you're fighting sin well? All the while during the rest of your week you are so entrenched in some hidden sin that no one knows about? You may think no one knows about that sin. But I must tell you, God knows. God knows everything. Friend, repent and live a life honorable to your, to, to your God. The way you live matters. Well, a third thing. This should encourage us with the second thing. But thirdly, hope awaits God's people. There's hope. The people of God will get back into the land. Jacob knows this. So much so that he says to his sons, bury me back in Canaan. He could have been buried there in Egypt. Or with his beloved wife, Rachel, where she was buried. But he's committed to God and his promises. And with that, Jacob passes away. And there's a bit of suspense at the beginning of chapter 50. What will Pharaoh think about this idea of all of them leaving Egypt to go on a trip? Will Pharaoh let the sons of of Jacob go up to Canaan to bury their father? Canaan is quite far away. It was a treacherous trek. He might think, well, what's wrong with a burial here in Egypt? Maybe he'd be offended. Well, Joseph says to Pharaoh in verse 5 of chapter 50, my father made me swear saying, I'm about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. Pharaoh has no problem with it. He lets him go. Go up. Bury your father. As he made you swear to do. Well, that was easy. And they go. Verse 9 says they go up and there's chariots with them. Horsemen. All the household goes. Even elders of the land of Egypt leave for this proper funeral back in the land of Canaan. This was quite the exodus. In fact, it sounds a lot like the 
Exodus, doesn't it? It's a little picture of that great event to come. Hope awaits God's people. They'll be given the promised land. It will come. And Jacob believes in God's promises and wants to be buried there. Because God is in control and faithful to do what he says, God's people have hope that God will fulfill every last promise he's made, even as they face death. Well, the first point this morning is that God's promises are reiterated. But that's not all we see in this passage. The second point of the passage is that God's perspective is remembered. That's number two this morning. God's perspective is remembered. Now that Jacob has passed away, Joseph's brothers get a little nervous. Look at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. These brothers are still a bit of a work in progress. Rather than praying or simply talking with Joseph, they come up with a plan and make up a story. They go into a meeting with Joseph. Joseph, uh, hey brother, good to see you. We forgot to tell you that when dad was dying, he wanted us to make sure we told you a message. Uh, The message was, uh, please don't get mad at us. That's what he said, right guys? Right, right, yeah, yep, um, sure. That's what he said. Uh, Dad left a message telling you to play nice with us. Well, Joseph takes a hint. And he weeps. Now, we're used to Joseph crying, aren't we? And there's nothing new. He likes a good cry every once in a while, and that's quite okay. But why does he cry here? Well, it's probably because he knows they're lying. Joseph realizes that the brothers don't trust him. They don't believe he's a sincere and forgiving man. They think he could hurt them. And this breaks Joseph's heart. At the same time, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Well, just like the dreams Joseph had decades earlier, the brothers bow down. They did once before, but they didn't know they were bowing down to Joseph. Now when they bow down, they know they are bowing down to their little brother, Joseph. And with that, this all sets up Joseph to say some of the most profoundly beautiful and God-exalting words in our entire Bible. Verse 19. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Aren't those just marvelous words? 
could take hours to unpack those. But let me give us three amazing realities that those that in those verses show us that Joseph has recognized something important about his life. Three amazing realities. First, he understands God's position. Joseph understands God's position. He leaves all the writing of wrongs to God. Verse 19, am I in the place of God? No, he understands that he's not. He understands that God is God and he is not. But this has been our problem ever since the garden. Adam and Eve's great sin was putting themselves in the place of God. They wanted to be like God. And Joseph understands that his place is not to exact revenge for sin done against him. See, when you look for revenge against someone, you are playing God. This is a serious matter. When you hold a grudge, you're playing God. When you hold on to anger, you are playing God. Tim Keller, the great pastor and author, has said, the fastest way to become like Satan is to try to be God. The fastest way to become like God is to refuse to be God. Isn't that true? For us to be godly is to fundamentally refuse to act in the place of God. Friend, is there someone in your life that you've held a grudge against and won't let go? I mean, if anyone had the reason to hold a grudge, it would be Joseph. Two decades. But he doesn't. Is there someone's work or someone's life that you've tried to sabotage in even subtle ways? Talking bad about them behind their back. Letting their boss know they're not doing a good job. Stop playing God and deciding what that person deserves. Trust God to do that. Trust God to be God. Joseph understood God's position very clearly. Well, a second thing Joseph does is he takes God's perspective. Verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph could see what we don't always see. While his brothers meant to hurt him, God was sovereignly in control over his life the whole time. He had a plan for Joseph to go to Egypt to not only save the Egyptians and not only save the world, but to save his brothers. In fact, Joseph going into slavery ultimately saved his own life too. Do you see that? Joseph can see God's perspective. But it's difficult for us to see God's perspective. I was reminded of this over the summer. We were over in Europe and the flat that we were staying in overlooked a park. One day one of our children was looking at the window during a rain and shouted out, there's a rainbow, there's a rainbow. So we all ran to the window to look at this most glorious rainbow. It was so majestic that we ran outside and chased it as far as we could get to get the best view. And this rainbow went from one side of the village all the way to the other side of the village. And we were fighting over the camera to take pictures. And it was just just breathtaking to see this full rainbow, all the colors. 
But no matter what view we would get, we never actually saw the whole rainbow. To see a complete rainbow, you'd have to get up in a helicopter or in an airplane because the rainbow is actually round. All we can see on earth is one or both of the ends fixed to the earth. But we can't see the whole thing. I read one pilot that said if you're flying at just the right time, at the right spot during a rainbow, you can actually fly around the circumference of the rainbow. You can, you can watch it and fly around the whole thing. There's no end of the rainbow. But from earth, you can never see the whole thing. This is how our mind works with God's sovereignty. We can see God's work, but we can't see it all. There are a million things God is doing behind the scenes that we just can't see. I think our minds would melt if we took in all the things God was doing in one moment. Friend, I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know the details of your past week. But there's half a rainbow of your life that you can't see. Resist looking at your trials and struggles from your earthly vantage point. Look at it from God's perspective. Know that there's a full rainbow of God's kindness in your life. And he sees the whole thing. He planned it and is in control over it. You know, when when Joseph says, you hurt me, you wronged me, that's true. That's absolutely true. The brothers were culpable for their sin. They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's what I'll focus on, Joseph says. I'm going to focus on God's view, his perspective, the view from the top of the rainbow, the way God sees it. It's not from the earth. See, down on earth, we have a hard time keeping those two things together. We often want to separate God's sovereignty and our earthly circumstances. We want to separate those two things, but God always holds them together. There are always one thing. But we struggle with this. We struggle with this on a regular basis. Let me just share one example of one of my struggles of holding those two things together just this past week. Glenn Jones, one of our pastors, many of you know Glenn, he calls me and says we need to talk. And then he asks me if I'm sitting down. Now, those are words you never want to hear on a phone call. That can't be a good thing. He says, I have some bad news. He says, due to circumstances out of our control, we can't have our normal ballroom for Christmas Eve. I've already mentioned that. We had it planned with 1,600 seats, overflow room, big lobby space, a big big platform. It would be a great outreach service. Lots of new people would come to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I said, what, what do you mean we can't have it? Isn't there something we can do? Well, pretty soon I had a minor panic attack and I thought, well, everything is ruined now. I guess we have to cancel Christmas. No more Christmas for us at Redeemer. And then I thought, well, whatever we do, it won't be as good as we planned. And then I studied the passage for this week. You know, I'll be honest, God's word is good for my soul. Trust is good for you when you read it daily and open it up and confront your own life in the words of God. And as I study this passage, I remember that God sees the whole rainbow and God is doing things that I couldn't even imagine right now. I don't know what he's doing. Maybe maybe he's doing some of these things this this week. Well, first of all, we know he graciously gave us another ballroom in this hotel. But as I thought about my silly example, 
Who knows what God's doing? Maybe he's got a plan for some people to come to the 5 p.m. service who wouldn't otherwise be able to come to the 7 p.m. service, hear the gospel, and become followers of Christ. Maybe someone at the 7 p.m. service will providentially run into one of our members they wouldn't meet otherwise, and they'll become friends, and they'll start reading the Bible one-on-one together for coffee over the next year. And one of those individuals will finally be confronted with some, some, some sin that has so entangled them, and they'll repent and find victory from it. Maybe God is protecting someone who would have gotten in a deadly car accident with the old plan who will now be spared. Maybe some employees of this hotel will now be able to come and and listen and hear the good news of the gospel. Maybe for the very first time. On God's kindness, it's a public holiday that day. So maybe we can even have more people to to these outreach gatherings to hear the good news. My point is, who knows what God is doing? I don't know. But I do know this. God always brings glory to himself. God is always working together all things for the good of those who are called according to his purposes. So my little panic attack was the result of seeing an earthly perspective and just half the rainbow. Instead of looking at God's perspective and seeing the whole thing. The problem is we don't normally get the whole thing, but friends, you've got to know it's there. The whole rainbow exists. Don't miss that truth today. God is sovereignly in control over every aspect of your life, your work, your health, your visa, your wedding plans. He's over it all, your singleness, your adoption paperwork, your barrenness and miscarriages, your marital strife. Your children's learning disability. Your difficult boss calls from the debt collectors. It's all under his control. He sees. He sees your bully at school. Your endless job searches. Your lingering interest payments. Your aging parents. Your cancer is not a surprise to him. Your back pain, your nerve disorder, your exhaustion, your legal issues. And all moments of sheer joy and delight. Every hour of wonderful fellowship with another believer. Every wedding day. Times singing with God's people. And all moments of salvation when people are saved. All of it. All of it is in the hands of a God who planned it, a God who is in sovereign control over it, and a God who will bring about your good and his glory in and through it all. This is a a God who's the maker of the rainbow, who sees the whole thing, and his ways are not our ways. And praise God for that. Praise God for this King of kings, this Lord of lords, who is over every last part of our lives. This is why Joseph was so convinced that God would give his people that promised land. You see there at the very end of the book, just like his dad, he says, hey, I want you to take my bones to the promised land because God will do what he says. Joseph takes God's, God's perspective And so should we. 
You meant evil against me. God meant it for good. Oh, I pray for us as Redeemer Church of Dubai that we would see the aspects of our lives like God sees them. Well, a third and final thing as we come to a close. A third thing Joseph does in these verses. Three, he models God's love. He models God's love. He understands he's been forgiven. He loves because God first loved him. Ephesians chapter 4 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. How do you forgive? A friend of mine once said, forgiving flows from forgiveness. Forgiving flows out of our understanding that in Christ, we as Christians are forgiven. That doesn't mean you forget. Forgiveness doesn't equal forgetfulness. It doesn't mean we necessarily go back in time as if everything is normal. But in spite of the memory, the debt is erased. Joseph couldn't forget, but he lets it go. If you don't forgive, what you're saying is that God's wrath is insufficient, so you have to step in and give it a try. Christ's death is not enough, so we need to inflict our own wrath on that person. God's standards may have been satisfied, but not ours. No. No, we forgive because God has forgiven us in Christ Jesus. Period. Because ultimately, there was one coming who was greater than Joseph. The better Joseph. Joseph understood that God was ultimately behind the plan to send him to Egypt. Well, Jesus, the greater Joseph who would come later, understood that in his life. Jesus gets off his throne in heaven to come be born to a virgin in a humble barn. Fully God and fully man. He grows up as a poor carpenter's son, and yet he lives a life of 100% moral perfection. But eventually the people couldn't take his claims to be divine anymore. They beat him and strip him naked, spit on him, pull his beard, mock him, and they crucify him like the worst of criminals. And he dies. But it's not just any death. There on the cross, he took upon himself the sins of all believers. He became our substitute. And the bad news is all of us deserve death for trying to be like God. We did the same thing Adam did, the same thing Joseph's brothers do, and what all have tried throughout history. But God himself came on a rescue mission for his people. He's the greater Joseph, the most brilliant picture of good coming out of evil. He was crucified at the hands of evil men. And yet at the same time, God planned this rescue mission. Listen to these words from Acts chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Man sinned, but God planned salvation from before time began. Man sinned, God planned. God planned And man sinned. There at the cross we see the greatest example of the convergence of God's plan and man's sin. Of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. 
And the message is clear. We have sinned. We are culpable for that. But let this message be clear too. That we can be saved if we would repent of our sin and trust in Christ to save us. Oh friend, if you have never done that today, if you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I urge you, there is no other way. There's no other way to be saved. Come to Jesus today and turn to him. We would love to talk to you about that after the service today. You saw our elders up on the platform beforehand. We'd love to talk to you. You can talk to the person who brought you here this morning, the person sitting next to you, someone at the connections table. But friend, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, don't leave here today without turning your life to him and having a conversation with us about it. We'd love to talk with you. But fellow Christian, as you leave today, you can trust this God. As we come to the end of Genesis, you can trust this God because when we look at the cross and see what Jesus has done for us, how can we then not trust him for all things? Genesis has taken us through many twists and turns. Promises and sin, promises and sin, more promises, more sin. But in the end, God is trustworthy. Promises made by God are always promises kept by God. Our lives are a full rainbow in his plan. Let us together trust in him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray as a church that our hope would be firmly planted in you. In you, the one who is sovereignly in control over all things. Would we trust you in confusing times? Would we trust you on those days when everything seems to go right on its own without you? Would we give you all the glory for all things? Would we always remember to catch a glimpse of the rainbow from your perspective? We pray this in the most sovereign and providential name that exists. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.